it will not be enough to propose such a legislation. We will need a renters' rights movement that will fight against corporate landlords. Because without that fighting strategy, we see what happened. That right there, folks, is Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant talking about the city's move to provide free legal counsel for tenants involved in eviction cases, one of several renters' rights bills she is working on right now. What is she up to? What is happening with COVID testing sites in Seattle? And how will some new hotel shelters opening downtown impact our homeless crisis? Guess what? We are working on all of that and some of our viewers' questions, too, on this edition of Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. And with me, a mild-mannered reporter by day, an avenging superhero by night. Look up in the sky. It's Kevin Schofield of Seattle City Council Insight. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, that was me flaming out last <laughs> Thursday night over the skies of Wasn't that crazy? It wasn't an alien. It was actually Kevin. Good to it know. Was me. Good to it know. was yeah. me. Good to Although, know. Although, really, I think of myself more as a mild-mannered superhero. Okay. All right. You can, you can keep the mild-mannered. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, okay. Thanks to City Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast. Please do support them. Other small businesses, too. Thanks also to our patrons. We're hoping to bring more of you on board here. If you're a listener, please think about joining us to support this podcast on Patreon. Make it happen at the $10 level, and if you like, we will send you your very own Seattle News Views and Brews coffee mug. A lot of people are doing this, and this sets you up for the mugshot of the week. Check it out. Catherine sending us one this week, featuring not only her new mug, but a friend she calls the curious one, her cat, Freddie. Kevin, I think once again proving, we're seeing proof right here, mammals of all species are big fans of our show. What, what do you think? Of course. Of course. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't leave a lot of comments, but you know right. you can you can tell you can tell they're paying attention. Yes, yes, that's the most important thing. And I'll I'll take all the curious mammals we can get. All right, so please do be a patron on Patreon here. Get a mug, we'll get your mug shot on the show. I wanted to make sure I passed along as well. A big thanks to Converge Media. It runs the video version of our podcast on their YouTube channel Wednesday nights at seven. And Kevin, I heard Omari Salisbury from Converge told me his mom, the Reverend Harriet Walden, is a fan of our show, as well as Ruby Holland. Ruby, Reverend Walden, thank you so much for listening. All right, let's get things going with right here, right now. Okay, here we are, end of March, start of April, on the city council's docket this week, a vote scheduled on an ordinance that would provide free legal counsel to any tenant who wants it, as it's written right now, involved in an eviction case. Kevin, we broke this down in our last episode, and I know we are recording this show just before the meeting happens here, so we're not entirely sure what's going to go down, but... This is one of these situations where the council says we have a legal issue here. This could be a violation of the state constitution if the city makes gifts of public funds in this way, because the constitution says it's good to do that for the poor and infirm. But for everybody, they have some question marks. How is the council going to settle up on this one? I think it, it's it's really difficult to say. And, you know, this is one where they have lots of closed door meetings with their attorneys that are attorney client privileged. And those of us peons outside <laughs> never get to see sort of what goes on with that. The room where it happens, yeah. They're, they're really kind of stuck on this, where on one hand, if they don't put kind of, some kind of increment on it, it's going to be unconstitutional. And on the other hand, if they do and create some kind of means testing where people have to show that that they can meet this, then um, then that creates barriers to people accessing this. Right. You may De- find a middle ground. the purpose, yeah, right? right. There are other programs like this where, like the, the city's utility discount program, where mm-hmm. people self-certify. That's that right. They meet the income requirements. Mm-hmm. So they may go a self-certification route on, right. on this. Right, it, You know, it's, it, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. You know, if they don't do that, I think they're really going to be jammed. 
Yeah, no, this has been a debate that's been going on for a while, and I know the council is going to keep on looking at that. I want to look ahead on this because there are a few more pieces here that Councilmember Sawant is working on, specifically banning the use of credit checks in rental applications. She's talking about doing that and also beefing up Seattle's just cause eviction law. Let's take a look at the just cause piece here because Seattle has had this law in the books for decades here. Landlords have to give a reason for evicting a tenant. But that's only if it's a month-to-month lease. If it's a six-month or year-long lease, they don't have to give that cause. Kevin, Councilmember Sawant has floated this idea before, actually proposed this two years ago. Do you see it as having a better chance to pass this time around, this beefing up of the just cause ordinance? Well, specifically what she wants to beef up at this at this point is what they call the end-of-lease loop, quote-unquote, right. loophole. Yeah, that which is that, the 12 Which is that yeah. at, at the end of a lease you don't actually have to uh, offer a renewal, right? right. The, landlord, the landlord can say, okay, that's, that's the end of it. And, and, and uh, you know, you need to move out. And uh, she's been calling attention to the city of Renton that, that addressed this by uh, requiring landlords to offer a renewal, I think it's 60 days before the end of the lease. City of Federal Way, Federal Way. Federal Way, Federal yeah, Way. Okay. You got it. Thanks for that correction. So I think she wants to do something along those lines. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know how this one is going to play out either. Yeah, right? yeah. Because, uh, you know, do, do, do landlords have the right to not renew? A lease, yeah, right. Does does every you know lease end up? What's the point of putting a term on a lease if it becomes perpetual? Right. Anyway. Right. 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 So I, you know, I don't know what the court's going to say about this. I know the the federal way one is in court right now. Yes. It's been challenged, mm-hmm. and we'll probably know later this year how that how that resolves. Yeah, and I know the state is working on this too. Nicole Macri, the representative we have who represents the Cap Hill area in Seattle, here is also working on this. But even her measure, which is trying to uh, offer this just cause protection for everybody in the state, that has a loophole of sorts as well. It requires a a 60-day window there at least. So it it looks like there's a state piece here and a city piece at work. I wonder how that state legislation might figure in here. Well, I I think, um, you know, the the questions around those are always what they call preemption. Yes, okay. If they set the rules at the state level, you know, does that preempt cities from doing something on their own? Mm -hmm. It would certainly... And, you know, even if they don't call a preemption, it would certainly prevent cities from doing something less restrictive. Yes, right, right, as opposed um, to Seattle, but could they, more restrictive. But could they do yeah. something more restrictive? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the city, all cities hate it when the yeah. state government preempts them. Yes. They want to be able to kind of run their own show. Yep, yep. So, you know, city probably push back hard yep. on that. They probably won't push it back as hard if the state does something really progressive. Sure. But, yeah, I'm still trying to run out of time and getting that through. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah, definitely. A lot to watch at the state and city level with these different renters issues. I wanted to talk about our next topic here, though, Kevin, some hotel shelters opening finally in downtown Seattle. And I say finally because the city council had wanted this to happen by December of last year. It took a few months for the mayor's office to sort this out. So the King's Inn near Amazon headquarters set to open this week. 66 rooms there. 155 rooms opened last week at the Hotel Executive Pacific downtown on Spring. Kevin, a lot of ink has been spilled on this, as you know. The first question I have, why did it take so long to stand these up in Seattle? And the mayor's office isn't really saying why it took so long. It's probably a mix of things, right? Okay. You know, it's not just about, I mean, they they have to negotiate the rates. Of course. The number of rooms and all that These are expensive, right. They have to negotiate, you know, how the whole process of how they're going to refer people into this. Who gets to do that, Right. 
Um, but then, you know, it's not just about the hotel rooms. It's also about all the staffing services that has to yeah, go with the that, wraparound right? services, right? Are the wraparound services for the individuals, but also just staffing, right? Sure, right. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 uh, you know who's going to provide security for that? Who's mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. to make sure that people move out when they're supposed to move out? Is cleaning, it right? whatever Is it else. Hotel sure. responsibility. Yeah. You know, yeah. Whose who's responsibility is cleaning? That may in fact be the hotel staff to do yeah. that. Right. Um, uh, so just that whole set of services of who's really going to manage this process. Mm-hmm. Who are they going to, you know, the city isn't going to do that on their own. They're going to contract yeah. with one of their human services providers to do that. Sure. Who is, who is the capacity to do that? How long does it take them to add capacity to yeah. be able to do that? So logistically, there are a bunch of things that, hit, that need to happen. And then it's just the money. Like, is the sure. money allocated to do that? Did they allocate enough money to do that? Did they need right. to go back and get more? Right. And, and going back and getting more, I thought this was interesting, too. These hotels have been set up with a 12-month lease, one-month ramp up and one-month ramp down after that. I really look at the decision that will have to be made a year from now. Is this a situation where the city might have to decide, okay, that was great having that as a shelter, but it's not anymore. I mean, what happens at that point next year when we start talking about this? Yeah, it's super expensive. So, you know. Yeah. The hotel things worked really well in terms of yes. stabilizing people, right? As a get housing people first, into permanent housing, yes. As housing first strategy, where you get somebody into housing, get them stabilized, get the wraparound services, and then make progress and issues that they have, so you can get them ready to move either into permanent supportive housing, yeah, or into some other form of affordable housing, mm-hmm. or or whatever situation is the, is the best next step for them. Yeah, it's super successful. It's, yeah, it's you know, before that, the best thing that we had going on was tiny house villages. Yeah, hoteling is better than that. Hoteling mm-hmm. is better than tiny house villages. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but but it's also really really expensive. Yeah, yeah. To do those, and the, so, and the city's paying for this with one time dollars, as I understand it, this lease that they're going forward with right now. I think that's my understanding too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I j- I just yeah. wonder what happens a year from now. And I also wanted to point out, Colleen Echohawk, the mayoral candidate, is also executive director of the Chief Seattle Club, which is running this King's Inn location. I almost see this as a, a bit of a test for her, seeing how this program goes at the King's Inn. Your thoughts about that as she runs for mayor and, and really looks at this homelessness issue? Well, Chief Seattle Club has been a major contractor with the city yeah. on on running, you know, they take city funding mm-hmm. to help run their own um, homeless shelter that, yeah. that, that the organization focused on Native Americans. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, they've done a whole bunch of other work, uh, you know, human services work. So they, they are a pretty significant provider for the city. Um, right. So this is right. one more thing to add to that list of stuff that Chief Seattle Club and, and, and Colleen Echohawk have been doing. Yeah. But, but, but it's a long list. Yeah. This is definitely not the only thing they did. True, true. Good point there. I also wanted to point out the city council is working on standing up a third hotel, possibly using some FEMA dollars to do that. So we'll keep track of that as well. I want to move on to our next segment here. Now hear this. All right. It is time to update some mixed news, I guess you'd say, in the battle against the COVID pandemic in our area. State health officials last week told us we are all eligible to get a back vaccine by May 1st. That's great news there. And those vaccines are getting distributed as we speak. That's also good news. But confirmed cases have now flattened statewide at about 654 per day. That's the same level we saw during the state's second surge of COVID cases last October. So here's what the state's acting health officer, Dr. Scott Lindquist, had to say about this. He's concerned about that R number. You always hear about the amount of other people that one person could pass the virus on to. Let's listen. That should be less than one. If you have infecting less than one person, 
this uh, pandemic starts to slow down. What we are seeing now is it is close to one, but seems to be a bit elevated a, a, above one, which is what we are hearing anecdotally from several counties that they're starting to see uptick in cases. So um, again, this is very concerning for the, the question of a fourth wave. So Kevin, the doctor is talking about a fourth wave, and I say no thank you to that, but it really does seem like COVID is being stubborn in some areas, especially King County. What do you see happening here? Well, yeah, so there's a couple of different threads of what's going on here that simultaneously. One, the bad news of this is actually here in King County, the numbers are going up. The case yeah. numbers are going up. Yeah. And, and what most of the researchers and medical professionals believe is it's the newer variants that are mm-hmm. more easily transmitted right. that are now in the state and are, you know, are in large enough numbers now and continuing to spread that is pushing the numbers back up. And probably to some extent, we're getting complacent as things are opening back up. Right, restaurants are opening back up, and we're just letting down our guard a little bit. So it's it's not one thing; it's really combinations. That's the bad news. Yeah. The good news is that the vaccination strategy is really working. Yeah. Right? At it's least in there. terms of the most important thing, which is to to prevent people from getting hospitalized sure. and prevent prevent people from dying. Right. Mm-hmm. Which you know the the pandemic experts will tell you that is the most important thing to do in a pandemic. Yeah. Stop people from going to hospitals, stop mm-hmm. people from dying. Yeah, those two right. are closely and, connected. Yeah. And if you look at the numbers, both in the state and, and in the county, the fatality rate and the hospitalization rate are steadily dropping. Right? Yeah. So the strategy of going out and vaccinating the people at highest risk for severe consequences mm-hmm. has really paid off. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's and, really, really paid off. Yeah, and I know uh, the president has been talking about doubling the number he originally talked about. He wants 200 million shots in arms by May 1st. So we'll see how that shakes out there. I wanted to talk about one other piece, though. An interesting point I noticed in my neighborhood of West Seattle here. Starting March 30th, our COVID testing site at the Southwest Community Center is going away, and it's going to go to vaccinations only. So this is a trend around the country, and it makes sense that vaccines, they're more important than tests. I will say that. But I wonder what happens when we have fewer testing resources out there. It just feels like this has been such a, an important part of knocking this pandemic down. And I wonder what happens next with that when we don't have as many testing locations to go to. Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons they're coming back right now is because the demand for testing has gone down. Yeah. That, okay. And that is probably not a good thing. Yeah. Right? Because people think they're safe or we, we still see that we still see the case counts. And again, the case yeah. counts are going up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. At, at the moment, mm-hmm. people, you know, think they're safer right now. You know, if they're if they have mild symptoms, they may not be going and getting tested, which is bad because we still want people who who have mild cases of COVID to get tested and to quarantine. So they're Absolutely. not Absolutely. So you don't spread the disease. To, yeah. 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 Coming back to, to you know Jeff Duchin and, and Scott Lindquist and mm-hmm. that R number, right? That's yeah. how we get the R number down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and and there's another really important part of the testing, which is it gives the researchers the ability to actually sequence mm-hmm. those viruses, find out to what extent it is different variants. Yeah. Right? Because because the vaccines have different levels of efficacy against the different variants, right? Yeah. We yeah. need to know what we're fighting. And we also need to know if there are new variants that are emerging. Right. 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 Because it's not like the virus is done, you know, done mutating. No, no, it, it's constantly so, doing that. So we're flying blind more mm. if we're doing less testing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I'm concerned about that too. And I know 
there's a federal piece in place where that's supposed to put $50 billion into more testing around the country. But how that's distributed, what that looks like, there's such a focus right now on vaccination. I'm, I'm concerned about that. I, I wonder what happens next with that testing because but we need more, clearly, uh, throughout our area. Um, I wanted to move on to another piece here, Kevin, from last week, a story that came out that I think both of us were concerned about. This is the uh, Sean Fuhr uh, shooting case. So a decision from the Office of Police Accountability came out about this, about Sean Fuhr, a 24-year-old man shot and killed by Seattle police while he was holding his one-year-old daughter in April of last year at Rainier Playfield. He had a gun before this incident happened with police, reportedly shot at people while holding his daughter before police did encounter him. Officers did not know he had gotten rid of the gun before they engaged him, but Fuhr was unarmed and holding his child when he was killed. The OPA said the shooting was lawful and proper. Those are the words that they used. The officer acted in a reasonable way as his SWAT training directed. Kevin, I know you had a ton of questions about this one. What what are your concerns about what came out here? Yeah, so, you know, I I think to me this really points out uh, the weakness in OPA's role, the Office of of Police Accountability. They're the Mm -hmm. ones who look at uh, incidents like this Mm -hmm. and decide whether there is discipline that needs to be applied. To, to this. The chief in the end of the day decides what kind of discipline needs to be applied, but OPA is the one that decides whether there should be discipline or not. At the end of the day, what they decide on is, did the officer follow the policy mm-hmm. of SPD? Right. And to me, the question really is, and this is a big, difficult question, yes. who writes the policy for SPD? Yeah, right. Right. You know, And we've seen a couple times in the last year mm-hmm. The city councils weighed in and tried They've been to write policy, yep. mm-hmm. but really, at the end of the day, a lot of it isn't SPD's control. Mm-hmm. It's the, under the consent decree, the right. 2012 consent decree, yeah. Yeah. and the process that it lays out, where right. SPD can propose changes, mm-hmm. and then um, the Department of Justice and the court-appointed police monitor weigh in as to whether they think it's appropriate. And at the end right. of the day. Judge James Robart, who oversees that consent decree, is the one who decides. Uh-huh. He, has, he has final decision power over what SPD's policy is on yeah. a whole variety of different things, including this. Yeah. Right? So, so mm-hmm. o- OPA can make recommendations. They can say, I think this policy I needs see. to change, mm-hmm. 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 but they don't get to say what the policy is. All they get to do is decide you know, interpret and decide whether in a particular incident, did an officer follow it or not, regardless of whether it's a good policy or not. Sure, sure. Right. They're just looking at how it was followed. And and I thought it was important too. the Community Police Commission, the community based group that provides oversight to the SPD, had a statement about this, about this decision from the OPA that was rendered here. They wrote this. We cannot continue to rely on police policy that has repeatedly allowed officers to shoot unarmed people. In no world should it be acceptable to shoot someone when they have a baby in their arms. And and that visual is something very scary to consider. Now, I will say Sean Fuhr was involved in a lot of different violence in the events leading up to the shooting or whatever else. But still, at the time, we're talking about an event where he didn't have a gun, he had a baby, and he was shot by police. I, yeah. I wonder about that. What is really going to change? We're hearing about this pressure from the CPC and other groups too, the NAACP. Yeah. What's really going to change? Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, in that incident, the OPA found that, uh, that you know, the officers uh, had reasonably believed that the child was in imminent danger of harm. Yes. Right. Which is right. one of the reason, reasons. And, and, you know, we can second guess that. You can make, yeah. You know, yeah. 
and and the OPA, their job is to second guess things like that. Yes, they they decided that 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 they believed the officers. That, yes, at, at that point, if there's someone um, with a gun and a baby and firing the gun, I, I I can see where they might might they might go down that path. Keep, keep going. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, but uh, to your question about like you know how does this change? Yeah. I, I think it, I think it. Uh, you know, I can tell you how it's supposed to change. It's supposed mm. to change with the OPA and the Office Inspector General looking at systemic issues like this and recommending, you know, policy changes. SPD yeah. may or may not take that up. The, you know, DOJ, Judge Robart, the police monitor, particularly the police monitor may say, hey, yeah, this really needs to change. Yeah. But but that's a long drawn out policy. That's got a lot of, you know, revision time. You know, this is not something that can change on a dime for better no. or worse. No, no. We've certainly seen that with the crowd control policy that the SPD has been working on over the last couple months. Does this get added into that mix? I know there's a lot that's on Judge Robart's plate right now, but I wonder how events like this influence uh, the different changes that might be coming to the SPD through the consent decree process. Yeah, I think it depends if somebody raises this to yeah. the police monitor and to, yeah. to, uh, uh, to Judge Robart. I didn't see a recommendation from the OPA yeah. that this policy needs to change. Yeah, right. right? That's... That's it, it's a troubling story all around. There's there's no other way to look at it. But again, it's something that we're going to monitor here on the podcast, and we'll be watching it as it develops here with the federal court as well. Let's move on to our final segment here. What's next? Okay, more election fun on our episode this week. And the question is, can you run for mayor and city council at the same time? Well, guess what? Kate Martin is doing that. She is a perennial candidate. She's run for many, many years. She wants in on the 15-person mayor's race, and she's running in the District 8 council race, which now at least has some other candidates facing off against Teresa Mosqueda. Kevin, from what I understand, the Seattle Ethics and Elections Commission said this could work for Kate Martin. Maybe she decides right before the deadline which which race she wants to really run in. Uh, but I guess I'll say she's one of now a few challengers to Teresa Mosqueda for that position eight seat but I'm not seeing any serious names there just yet. Are you in, in that race? For no, no I'm, not, I'm not seeing yeah. any. You know, they're, they're and does that more surprise people. you? Yeah. I think in early May, we'll see more people jump in, but but we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but in terms of this particular thing, yeah. you know, the, the Ethics and Elections Commission has said a couple different things. Can somebody run for multiple offices at the same time? Uh-huh. Yes, they uh-huh. can do that. Yeah. Right. Um, is that separate campaigns or is that the same campaign and the mm. same sort of campaign trough of money? Yeah, right. That's a more interesting question. Then you can take that one step further and mm-hmm. say, what does it mean for dro- if they participate in the democracy vouchers program? Sure, right. As, I'm, um, as and, I would imagine. And what the SEC yeah. what has looked at before is what happens if you decide you're running for one city council position mm-hmm. and then you decide you want to switch to a different one? Like, like... You know, the, the position eight and position nine are both citywide. Yes, right, right. Position eight, then when you see who else is, you know, has has uh, signed up to run for that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you don't like that combination. combination you jump you jump ship. Yeah. You jump over to, to, to <laughs> nine. Do you get to carry everything with you? If you took democracy vouchers as a candidate for, for, for position eight, mm-hmm. can you carry those over to position nine? Oh, man. Right. But that's a serial thing. It's like one or the other. And what mm-hmm. Kate Martin is doing is running them at the same time. Yeah. And it yeah. comes back. Are those separate campaign war chests? Oh, or boy. Or is it one? Yeah. Really weird, complicated stuff. 
Yeah, it, it is. And I think a lot of people are complicated enough as it is by democracy vouchers. I saw a story recently that some people are donating to one mayoral candidate and then another using their democracy vouchers, not really throwing all their weight behind one person, but sort of spreading the peanut butter a little thinner there. And I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of questions around I that. I think that's okay. Yeah, I, I do too. Okay. I don't mind hey, it, but it's, like, it's interesting. And, you know, if you want to have a raging, if you want to make sure you have a really good raging policy debate, that's right. Mm-hmm. let's get a bunch of candidates in there who are going to have different positions and, yeah. And, yeah. and see sort of what rises to the top. I, yeah. think, I think that's perfectly fine. I, I think it'll be very interesting to watch. I, I wanted to pass along a quick question, Kevin, that we got in from one of our listeners and patrons. Voss asked us this after our story about redistricting in our last episode. He asked, the ordinance for the districting commission, I believe he means redistricting here, says city employees are not eligible to apply. And in fact, most of the other commissions say exempt employees are not eligible. So he's talking about that interaction there between these commissions and city employees, etc. Any idea why this is? It feels like a conflict of interest to me, but do you have any more thoughts on this, Kevin? I thought this was an interesting question. I can think of a bunch of reasons. The, okay. the, the ordinance itself, you know, uh, actually it's in the city charter, doesn't yes. really specify why that's in there. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, it, it comes down to conflicts of interest or, yeah. you know, sort of really who are they representing. What would happen if, uh, you know, an elected official got on there? Sure, or, right. Or, uh, you know, a staff member, a mm-hmm. legislative aide to yeah. an elected official. There'd, be, there, a, there'd right? be a question about, okay, yeah. About who, you know, they, they would have a conflict of interest. Are they doing this? Are they representing the city on this commission? Yes. Or are they representing their boss? Yeah, yeah. And, or should they be representing the higher ideal of redistricting and getting it right? I mean, that's, uh, I, I think that's a bottom line here too. So, uh, Voss, thank you very much for that question. And Ke- Kevin, thank you for the back and forth there. Uh, I wanted to wrap up our show with always the most important part of this, the tasty treats that are good to have on your coffee break because man does not live on on politics alone. And uh, Kevin, today I have to present to you one of my daughter's infamous, famous, and probably deadly brownies with peanut butter fudge sauce. Okay, so Uh, you can see, yeah, I'm not messing around right here. So stick that through the camera, I want that. Okay, I know, I wish I could, I wish I could. uh, But, But here's the deal, I like my baked goods hot out of the oven, but with these, straight out of the freezer is when they're best. Uh, I don't yeah. know what that is. How do, why do these your, things your dentist, taste better you, frozen? Well, my your dentist, dentist probably like doesn't it. like that. Yeah. No, but what's the, what's the phenomenon going on there? Why are some of these treats better when they're frozen? The magic of, 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 I mean, it's almost like I'm, I'm, I'm eating. Well, I'm going to take a bite. You, you think about that. Cause I got to think, oh yeah. It turns into, some, it used to be kind of chewier, but then there's a little bit of chewy inside where it hasn't totally frozen through. So just having like diff- like having different textures in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a little bit more of a complex experience there, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. You know, one of the well, we talked about this before. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about chocolate mm-hmm. and and makes it so awesome is uh, that it is solid at room temperature. Yep. And liquid at body temperature. Right. Right. right so it, right. It, it it does literally melt in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what chocolate does, right? So yeah. so. Eating something that's that's going to change its you know state of matter in mm-hmm. the process of being eaten is mm-hmm. it's kind of this awesome uh, it, you know it's a food experience if you're in yeah no it doesn't only change the brownie it changes your life people have a frozen brownie it changes, today it changes it's, my it, life. it's the stuff it's chocolate the stuff. changes my life chocolate yeah always, no. I mean doesn't it change your life oh yeah it, every day when I can, when I can get that change to happen it's it's important <laughs> well thank you Kevin for your for your insights and all things. Frozen and political here. We covered some good ground today. (laughs) Thank you, Brian.
All righty. Thanks also to all of our patrons. I did want to give the shout out again. Please do support us on Patreon at $10 a month if you can. You can get your very own Seattle News, Views and Brews coffee mug. And thanks to everybody who is listening here to our podcast. You can always find out what's brewing on Seattle News, Views and Brews. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen. Again, please do support us on Patreon so we can keep this thing rolling here. Thanks also for watching on Converge Media. And we will see you next time. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2021.